Scripture itself reiterates that there is a natural knowledge of God. Um, it also informs us that that knowledge is very limited, that it, it, it becomes uh, corrupted by fallen reason, and yet it's still there. And um, it, it helps us understand how important it is for uh, the gospel to connect with those who haven't yet heard about Christ and Christ's promises. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Have you ever heard of the phrase natural theology? Well, I am guessing if you have heard of that phrase, it's been used in a very negative way. Uh, Perhaps uh, someone brought up natural theology and you said, or someone said, hey, that's Roman Catholic, isn't it? Or perhaps natural theology was brought into the conversation and it wasn't at all reflected on in a way that uh, highlighted its positive role uh, in Protestant theology, but only in a negative, a negative fashion. Uh, All that to say, Protestants and evangelicals in particular have uh, a bit of a history of being suspicious towards natural theology. But when we look at whether it's Paul in Acts 17 or Paul in, in the book of Romans, we may want to ask ourselves whether we've overreacted or believed caricatures that uh, don't have as much truth as we initially thought. And it raises the question, well, what is natural theology and what role should it play in a Protestant understanding of theology? For Discussing natural theology, uh, I can't think of anyone better than Stephen Duby, Associate Professor of Theology at Grand Canyon University. Uh, He's written a couple of books that I think our uh, listeners will find so helpful. Uh, His first book is called Divine Simplicity, A Dogmatic Account, such a helpful guide and introduction to uh, a, a core component of our theology proper. But he's also written another book called God in Himself, Scripture, Metaphysics, and the Task of Christian Theology, published with IVP. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast to talk about natural theology. Thanks, Matthew. Glad to be with you. Now, uh, let me just ask you at at the start here, uh, you know, maybe you've had a similar experience. You're a teacher. Uh, maybe you've had this type of experience like I've had where uh, someone, uh, well, the the topic of natural theology will come up and immediately there's objections or suspicion or outright rejection of it. And this may be occurring among even Protestant evangelicals. Uh, Have you had that type of experience or at least seen it out there? And uh, how do you typically respond to that? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think it is common for someone to hear the phrase natural theology and associate it with something that might not uh, sound so good. For example, they might have in mind um, a tendency for someone to make claims about God strictly based on human reason uh, that presume too much, that don't actually connect adequately with God's revelation in Scripture. So I think it's important to frame the the concept of natural theology, or as I'll sometimes say, uh, the natural knowledge of God in a in a good and healthy way. Mm. I would want to say natural theology is not to be considered a separate agenda, uh, distinct from uh, or separate from the other things that we do in Christian theology when we exegete Scripture. I'd want to put it in the context of God's overarching plan for our salvation and talk through how God uses the knowledge he gives us through nature in order to prepare us for the gospel and keep us accountable to him so that we have a sense of there being a creator, a moral lawgiver, uh, to whom we're accountable. Uh, that That's something that helps people understand the need uh, to be reconciled with God and the need for the gospel. Mm. You know, you've, you've mentioned here... Uh, both the scriptural witness and even the gospel itself, I, I'm assuming uh, some of our listeners, maybe they're pastors out there, maybe they're students, uh, maybe they're, they're theologically-minded churchgoers, uh, whoever they are, they, they may also be wondering, well, are you saying that uh, natural theology is actually something we see in Scripture itself? Are, are, so maybe I can pose that to you. Are do we have indications in the biblical witness that uh, natural theology is something quite, well, natural for the biblical yeah, authors? Yeah, yeah, we do. We're in an interesting position when we reflect on natural knowledge of God, because uh, on the one hand, it does come through nature. And so uh, by encountering uh, the beauty of the created order or uh, the pressure that our conscience exerts on us, um, to act in certain ways, we do acquire natural knowledge of God naturally, um, and yet at the same time, we also have in Scripture uh, a reiteration of what it is that nature teaches us. And I would want to point to texts like Psalm 8, for example, which famously begins with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There are um, other texts in the Psalms that we could turn to. The first part of Psalm 19 is an obvious one where the heavens declare the glory of God. So in Psalms like that, um, David, who is someone who has uh, God's uh, revelation through Moses, um, can also still appreciate what it is that the natural order teaches about God. It's not either or. It doesn't have to be someone cares about supernatural or special revelation, or else they care about uh, what it is that nature teaches. You could be um, uh, a recipient of supernatural revelation, living in God's covenant, and uh, from that standpoint, appreciate what it is that nature offers human beings. If we turn to the New Testament, of course, Romans 1 would have to be considered where um, people understand something of God's eternal power and divinity, by the things that have been made. Um, so Scripture itself reiterates that there is a natural knowledge of God. Um, it also informs us that that knowledge is very limited, that it, it, it becomes uh, corrupted 
by fallen reason, and yet it's still there. And um, it, it helps us understand how important it is for uh, the gospel to connect with those who haven't yet heard about Christ and Christ's promises. Now, you mentioned uh, Romans 1. Uh, we certainly could talk about Acts 17 as well. Yes. Um, how, how exactly, you know, in a text like Acts 17, uh, Paul, he's not just, you know, reflecting on natural theology to his readers, but um, like, like he would in an epistle. Here we're actually getting to see Paul in action, right? Yeah. Um, what is happening in Acts 17 between Paul and some of these uh, luminaries, the, some of the brightest luminaries of, of the day? Yeah, I think that's an important point, that in Romans you have uh, the Apostle writing to folks who are already Christians, so there is um, a bit of a different epistemological starting point there. But when we get the record of what Paul does in Acts chapter 17, like you pointed out, uh, we get to see Paul in action, interacting with people who have not yet embraced the gospel. Um, one of the things that I try to do in, in the book, God and Himself, is interact with um, Kevin Rowe and, and Matthew Levering and how they yeah. um, how they describe Paul's engagement with uh, non-Christian thinking um, in that narrative in Acts 17. And uh, on the one hand, um, as someone like Rowe rightly points out, there are points at which Paul, of course, uh, challenges non-Christian thinking or non-Christian philosophy when it comes to spiritual things. Um, so Paul um, certainly doesn't, um, does not give approval to the idolatry that is present in uh, non-Christian religion or non-Christian philosophy. He wants to underscore that the true God is the one who made heaven and earth. Um, he's not served by human hands as though needing anything. And in fact, he has sent uh, Christ, uh, raised him up from the dead, and appointed him to be the judge. And that doesn't, uh, I mean, key points of that do not resonate well with what these um, Greek intellectuals had in mind. Mm. Um, at the same time, I do think that Matthew Levering's work on this also has an important point to give us, because it's not as if Paul treats uh, non-Christian philosophy as 100% incommensurable with the kinds of claims that are made in the Gospel. In other words, it's not as if uh, there's absolutely no common ground between someone like Paul describing God and what God has done, and the, the non-Christian philosophical traditions that he's trying to engage there. So I think it's important for us to be able to carve out a middle way there. Um, on the one hand, not everything that is present in non-Christian religion and philosophy ought to get our approval. In fact, there's much that needs correction. Mm. At the same time, Paul also does provide us with an example of appealing to some of those resources or making reference to those resources to have a point of connection. Um, so um, it's not as if when someone who's a Christian talks about God, um, they will have absolutely no point uh, of common ground with someone who's not a Christian. And one of the things that I think that helps us with is it sees, it shows us that um, the work we do um, in drawing upon uh, the knowledge of someone who's not a Christian, um, it, it matters and it can be helpful in getting the gospel out. It can be helpful in the task of evangelism. So what we do in our thinking and our speaking 
um, can be instrumental. It can be used by the Holy Spirit to bring people to faith. And I think that's uh, both encouraging and, and it's also a challenge for us as we as we try to think carefully and take responsibility for what we say in, in the process of evangelism. Now, you, you, you almost hinted at it a minute ago, um, because if we understand natural, theo- natural knowledge, if we want to call it that, natural knowledge of God, if we understand that God himself is the origin, right? He's the creator yeah. in uh, his own self-revelation. Uh, yeah. that, that also then brings us to the, the next question, which is, well, okay, what purpose uh, does he intend? Like, what, what is the purpose of natural knowledge? Um, you seem to hint at that a, a minute ago. Maybe you could just briefly flesh out uh, that, that same question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what you touched on there um, just a second ago also is important, that uh, the origin of natural knowledge of God is God himself, or God's action in his self-revelation. So it's not as if we're talking about a pathway to God that God has never given or never um, set out for us. We're actually trying to um, honor something that God has given us and God has taught us, even if we also recognize that that pathway does not lead to, does not by itself lead to salvation or reconciliation with God, because it doesn't give us Christ the mediator through whom we have to approach God. Mm. But um, God has still given the natural knowledge of himself for specific purposes, and I think that uh, one of them is simply to keep us in contact with himself. Um, Even though someone doesn't have access to uh, a record of Christ's life, they don't have uh, access to the four Gospels, or they don't have access to the the full canon of scriptural revelation, there still is cognitive contact uh, between that person and God. And there is, of course, a a limited uh, social value to that in, in the sense that a person in that situation would uh, be aware of their accountability to God, and that would affect um, their their treatment of other human beings, even if that person is a sinner and is still going to do wrong things. Um, it's not as if they have no knowledge of there being a righteous God to whom they're accountable. Um, also, beyond that more limited social value, we can point to uh, a value of, of natural knowledge of God that connects to the gospel, that connects to eternal salvation. Um, one of the phrases that I, I've borrowed in this chapter on natural theology in the book is preparation for the school of grace, and that is from mm. uh, Johann Alsted, uh, an early Reformed author. And I like the phrasing that he uses there. He is uh, construing natural revelation, natural knowledge of God as a matter of uh, us getting prepared for the light of the gospel, so that we are not starting from nowhere. We have some traction. We have some knowledge that there is a, a creator, that this creator uh, is wise and powerful enough to make the heavens and the earth, and that this creator uh, is just and has certain expectations of us. And from a chapter like Acts 14, um, we also learn that uh, through nature, people are aware of God's uh, benevolence. Um, because God, uh, as Acts 14 teaches us, has provided rain and crops and gladness in the hearts of human beings. It's just that it doesn't present Christ as the mediator. We don't learn of God's trying existence or the missions of the Son and Spirit. So we need an awful lot more uh, from scriptural revelation and from 
the gospel, uh, but at the same time, God uses natural revelation, natural knowledge of God to keep us in contact with himself and to prepare us for his revelation in the gospel. Mm. You know, when we talk about uh, the way—I I love the way you've, you've phrased it there, you know, borrowing from the, the Reformations, Refor- Reformers and Reformed, uh, mm-hmm. natural knowledge and natural theology is preparation for the School of Grace. If we think of it uh, through that lens— uh, mm-hmm. Well, that actually changes our our per, our mindset, and and even our uh, it maybe it lets down some of our suspicions to natural theology if we understand it properly according to, to how God intended. Now that that said, uh, you know I, I can't help but think of Augustine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Augustine takes what you just said seriously. And he wants to understand how this natural theology, not, not only what it, its purpose is, but also where he might see it around him um, in both ancient literature and in his own day. Um, you know, Augustine's been criticized at times because some have said, oh, he's, he's uh, just importing um, the ideas of the Platonists into Christianity, and uh, this is uh, corrupting his understanding of Christianity, and, and those after him are follow that same trajectory. But um, maybe you could help us understand, uh, is, when we talk about Augustine, he seems to recognize that, well, on the one hand, uh, there's much to benefit from non-Christian philosophers, uh, in this case, the Platonists, um, and he's going to spell out some of those benefits. And at the same time, um, is Augustine, uh, he, he also is, uh, well, wise enough to recognize that uh, certainly, as you, as you hinted at, certainly um, the Platonists don't take us all the way there. Uh, can, yeah. can you reflect on, you know, how, how does Augustine in particular, how does he understand uh, not just philosophy, but, but wisdom? And, and how, how should we, you know, if we, we kind of brush aside some of the caricatures, how should we understand Augustine's appropriation of the Platonists in a way that's healthy? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's there's so much complexity in Augustine's thought, and I'll I'll begin by saying yeah. I don't presume to be um, uh, an expert on uh, Aquinas um, as a as a yeah, I mean Aquinas studies can be considered a, a scholarly discipline in its own right. So I don't want to presume to be speaking from that position. But at the same time, there are um, a, a lot of rich things that he has to say in uh, City of God, for example, about these kinds of things. He is both uh, critical of non-Christian philosophy, including Platonism, which he regards as the best form of non-Christian philosophy, uh, and at the same time also appreciative of some of the good things that can be found there. I really I really appreciate the, the clarity that he tries to bring in City of God in particular. Um, he reflects on scriptural texts like the ones that we've just been talking about, Acts 17, for example, or Romans 1 and acknowledges that there is some knowledge of God among the philosophers. He, uh, as is well known, is appreciative of the Platonic philosophical tradition. At one point, he even um, reflects on whether 
Plato somehow may have had contact with Old Testament scriptures, uh, but he ultimately says this is due to a knowledge of God that's given uh, through the natural order. Um, so he, he's willing to appreciate what's there in uh, the Platonist philosophical tradition, but at the same time, he recognizes that this material is mixed with error. So it's not as if it is uh, entirely pure. There is, um, according to Augustine in, in the Platonist tradition, um, a kind of service or worship that's granted to other beings than the one true God. And there is a problem in Platonism with affirming the Incarnation. And Augustine, as a Christian theologian, of course, is going to want to affirm the Incarnation of God's Son and the importance of that for our salvation. So um, he may not be perfect on everything, but Augustine does give us an example of a, a Christian person trying to appreciate what uh, non-Christians can apprehend about God, while at the same time recognizing that there are going to be errors mixed in, and there needs to be um, a healing of the mind, a renewal of the mind, by way of God's supernatural revelation in Christ and Scripture. To take it a, a little bit farther, I, I suppose we could also point out that Augustine has a, a certain understanding of uh, how God facilitates human knowledge, uh, both of himself and even of ordinary temporal things. Um, Augustine has uh, an understanding of illumination or the, the enlightenment of the human intellect that uh, emphasizes the direct activity of God in the mind uh, in order for human beings to arrive at knowledge of himself and even of ordinary created things. And that, that could be brought into discussion with the way that later thinkers deal with the, the notion of illumination. Uh, but maybe I'll, I'll push pause for now on that and just say that, um, as you mentioned, Augustine does draw a distinction between uh, knowledge or scientia in, in the Latin and uh, wisdom. And um, he conceives of uh, knowledge as rational cognition of temporal things, um, and that can involve some knowledge of God through the created order, but it's still not sufficient to overcome human alienation from God. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, there's wisdom, and that is a, a cognition of eternal things. And in that case, instead of viewing created things and then arriving at some limited knowledge of God. Wisdom is a matter of knowing God, and then in light of God, being able to see other things. And that distinction is picked up um, by someone like Aquinas, for example. Uh, it's possible to have uh, knowledge um, of created things that points to um, certain truths about God, but wisdom uh, is a knowledge of higher things, especially God himself, in light of which lower things can be rightly judged and understood. So natural knowledge of God involves, um, uh, well, to use the Latin term, scientia, or, or, or uh, knowledge that involves um, inferring from one thing conclusions about something else. But um, it's really just through the supernatural uh, theology given in Scripture that someone can um, have a more direct apprehension of God, and then in light of God, see other things. So mm. there are important uh, elements on both sides there. On the one hand, creation does give us a knowledge of God. On the other hand, uh, it doesn't give us the fullest knowledge of God that we are capable of. And so we want and we need Scripture to uh, illumine our minds, to give us uh, an understanding of God that then allows us to look out from 
a properly theological vantage point and then evaluate other things and see them in the light of God. You know, you mentioned uh, Thomas, Thomas Aquinas, and, yeah. uh, you know, my mind immediately goes to the, the brilliant way that Thomas uh, formulated, say, the, the relationship between the creator and the creature. Uh, specifically, when it comes to God's existence, uh, Thomas, um, it's hard to beat. He, the way that he describes um, this eternal, infinite, and uh, immutable, uh, unchanging God, uh, you know, different phrases have been used, the unmoved mover. Mm -hmm. Thomas at times will will speak of, uh, in light of his immutability and uh, timelessness, uh, Thomas will talk of the Creator as the first cause. And from there, he, he will also very comfortably move to then looking at the effects, right? What are the, yeah. the effects of that first cause that are these effects in the created order um, um, that we experience? And even when we look at our own finitude, we see are very different than the Creator. Um, they are effects that, uh, well, we, we don't, to take us, for example, we are mutable. Um, we are yeah. compounded. We're not simple. Uh, we are very much dependent um, uh, for our existence and uh, even our, our own fulfillment. Um, Thomas, though, uh, believes that, well, actually natural theology can actually give us some insight on um, how we think of not just the existence of God, but but this immutable God in relation to the created order. Now, uh, you know, there's been a lot of, um, I would say, caricatures of, of Thomas, um, some by, you know, Protestants and evangelicals as well, in which they just assume that, uh, well, Thomas is, is just a rationalist and uh, yeah. that, that he, uh, you know, he, he doesn't see any type of... Um, Faith as that which presupposes um, the, the, these type of reasonable arguments. Um, how would you how would you respond to that type of character? And and maybe the bigger question that that you could flesh out for us is, you know, how does how does Thomas understand faith and reason, and how does it come through, especially with 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 a, a title like God is the first cause? Yeah. Yeah, I think that it's fair to say that there have been Protestant suspicions toward um, Thomas Aquinas, or, or maybe we could say what Thomas Aquinas represents as a medieval theologian. And he certainly does um, make some moves that would be different from what a number of recent uh, Protestant theologians end up doing in their theology or in their understanding of how theology works. But at the same time, I do think that there are um, misrepresentations of Aquinas out there that, uh, if fixed, can help us uh, draw upon him as, a, as such a great figure and a great resource for us today. So I instead of thinking that Aquinas um, basically thought that the human mind um, was good to go and had no limitations or no, um, no problems due to sin, it's important to remember that Aquinas was a biblical commentator. So the things that are said by the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 about how uh, the mind is darkened uh, due to sin and all of that stuff, all of that is on Aquinas' radar, and he doesn't neglect those things. 
Um, at the same time, he still does affirm that there is a knowledge of God that's accessible even to those who do not have the supernatural revelation of Scripture and, and do not start from that point. Um, so he thinks that uh, reason is most definitely uh, limited and that it is tainted by sin, and yet it's not so utterly destroyed that the human person can't uh, access natural, the natural uh, order of creation and, and arrive at some knowledge of God. Uh, so there are um, lines of reasoning in Aquinas that indicate how um, a person um, apprehends God uh, through the created order. Um, Aquinas even uh, affirms that someone can uh, view the created order and arrive at a knowledge of God without having to go through a long process of scientific reasoning. Uh, I think that's important for people to recognize. He does not necessarily think that you must uh, engage yourself in a, in a huge uh, demonstration, step-by-step, step of God's existence or attributes. He even affirms that someone who simply encounters the created order understands that there is one who has ordered these things and on whom we are dependent. Um, so there, there is that side in Aquinas' theology, and I think that that's, uh, that's important, um, not just uh, for getting him right historically, but also for understanding um, some of the teaching of Scripture, because frankly, it would be a mistake if we tried to depart from Thomas on this, thinking that we were being more biblical, when in fact the Bible actually does teach us that for all the bad effects of sin, human beings do still possess uh, by nature, uh, by the natural intellect, some knowledge of God. Um, Paul does say that it is suppressed in Romans 1, but uh, I would want to emphasize that in order to suppress something, you still do have to possess it in some way. Right. So that's still there. Um, on the other side, uh, Aquinas, um, number one, he doesn't, he doesn't assume that uh, the average person will be able to engage or ought to be um, assumed to engage in uh, um, a long demonstrative process of uh, proving the existence of God or something like that. He acknowledges that uh, many people aren't going to have the intellectual aptitude for that. They're not going to have time. And furthermore, even those who do engage in that sort of activity, uh, they get mixed up with error. So uh, it is not the case that uh, sacred doctrine, um, the kind of thing that Thomas does in, in a major work like the Summa Theologiae, has to be built on um, rational proofs for the existence of God. It's actually built on Holy Scripture. And there is a, there is a sense in which what is available through nature, it does provide traction and some connection points for engaging in... Um, let's just say what we would call dogmatic theology or systematic theology today. But um, still, it, it is the Word of God that provides the epistemological foundation for the proper work of, um, like I said, what Aquinas would call sacred doctrine or what we might call uh, systematic theology today. Mm. So there is a natural knowledge of God. Reason is still able to function according to Aquinas, and at the same time, um, it's not the case that the proofs for God's existence are um, that they have to be considered the basis for um, supernatural theology. And I think that's, um, that's important for us to, um, A, recognize from a historical perspective, B, um, 
recognize as something that actually does correspond to what's there in Scripture, and, and C, uh, it's something that's important because it helps us maybe become a little bit more comfortable um, tapping into the resources like some uh, of someone like Aquinas, because we would really we would really cut ourselves off from the resources of his works at our at our own peril or at our disadvantage. There's so much to learn from him, and it does not mean being un-Protestant if we do take him or other medieval theologians seriously. You know, that's such a an encouraging word, and I, I hope our listeners will, will really hear that, uh, because uh, there, there's no shortage of suspicion towards, you know, Augustine, but especially Thomas, and uh, recognizing that actually Thomas is, is a really uh, helpful guide to the scriptures themselves, which speak about this natural theology. Now, it's no secret yeah. that when we come to the modern era, and you know, there's there's modern era is a big one. Um, there is uh, no shortage of uh, reactions against uh, what we're calling um, a Christian understanding of uh, natural theology. I mean, we mm-hmm. have. Um, you know, pretty pretty strong skeptical instances uh, with kind of a redefinition of metaphysics and epistemology with someone like Immanuel Kant. Um, mm-hmm. But even when we come to, say, uh, the Protestant Reformed tradition, you know, you think of a figure like Karl Barth, it's no secret that Barth uh, had a thing or two to say uh, <laughs> that was quite <laughs> negative about yeah. natural theology. So, Let's just, uh, you know, I, I, I realize that, uh, you know, we can't uh, resurrect Bard and, and bring him back into the, the studio here, but let's just pretend for a minute, you know, Bart's, uh, you know, making his case against, you know, natural theology. How, first of all, what, maybe for our listeners who are unfamiliar with Bart, what, what is Bart saying no to, and uh, what, what would be your your response to Bart? Yeah, I think that, um, first of all, Bart is often a really helpful dialogue partner. It's exciting to read him because he will stimulate your thinking no matter which position you're coming from. And uh, even if you're in a position where you end up needing to disagree with him on some significant things. Um, As far as I can tell, Bart's opposition to natural theology is something that stems from his concerns about the claims of uh, the Nazi agenda in the German environment where he was living. And I think that um, immediately we can say that those concerns are important. The Nazi agenda was obviously evil. And um, I want to listen to what Bart has to say and um, try to understand in in what ways um, did his context inform his rejection of natural theology? Um, to what extent um, is Bart in some cases worried about something uh, or denying something that was not necessarily what someone like Aquinas would have actually wanted to affirm? Um, I'm not saying that Bart would Bart, on a careful reading of someone like Aquinas, would would be on board with whatever with everything that um, Aquinas or others um, would want to say. But I do think that it's important to pay attention to the context in which Bart was operating. Uh, he was very concerned about anyone uh, starting from their own uh, mind, their own set of preferences, and then projecting such preferences onto God, as if God 
could be made into the greatest version of what someone, a mere human being, likes. That's obviously not uh, a good way of doing theology. We don't want to make God into a bigger version of us that would just justify the stuff that we already prefer or already like. Um, now, I, I think that it's important to also recognize that in Bart's reading of Scripture, um, he tries to offer some different interpretations of some of the passages that are traditionally taken to point toward natural theology, like Psalm 8, Psalm 19, Romans 1. Uh, for Bart, in reading Romans 1, he thinks that this is uh, a Christian, obviously the Apostle Paul, writing to a group of Christians uh, who already have the epistemological bearings of the gospel. So he doesn't find Romans 1 to be actually teaching that uh, people who don't have the gospel have um, something that could be called genuine knowledge of God. In that regard, I would want to respond and say, yes, this is a, a Christian apostle writing to a group of Christians in Rome. But what Paul actually says in Romans 1 pertains to those um, who don't know the gospel, and, and it is a knowledge that's arrived at by the things which have been made. That's what Paul says there. So I think a text like Romans 1 still holds us to uh, the acknowledgement that God has revealed certain things of himself through the natural order. Um, and I think I would just want to distinguish what that looks like from some of the things that Bart worried about. It's not the case that a text like Romans 1 authorizes us to uh, construct a God who's just the bigger version of stuff that we like. That's not how it works. Um, and in fact, I think that in a text like Romans 1, we're actually reminded that natural theology or natural knowledge of God rightly conceived is something that puts us in our place. It keeps us accountable. Uh, it calls us to recognize that we didn't make ourselves, and there is an objective standard for our actions that uh, precedes us and, and will judge our actions. So um, we can sympathize with many of the concerns that, that Bart had, but at the same time recognize that Scripture does point us toward a natural knowledge of God um, that might make someone who is Bartian in their theological orientation uncomfortable, but um, if, if it holds us to a natural knowledge of God, that, that's really where we have, to, we have to stay if we're not entirely convinced by Bart's interpretation of the relevant passages. Right, right. You know, at the, maybe this would be just a fitting conclusion to our discussion uh, to talk just briefly about you know, how natural theology should, uh, you know, we've, we've been referring to it, uh, you know, in, in terms of natural theology itself and, and the doctrine of God and, and then revelation. But, uh, and you've hinted at this uh, throughout our time, uh, natural theology actually uh, has a lot of implications for, um, for Christian theology as a whole, but also uh, Understanding the Christian life and the way that we uh -huh. we even approach God, uh, I can't help but think of Thomas Aquinas again. And you actually referred to him at one point when you say that uh, you know if we're talking about the way of ascent, that that was Thomas's phrase there, the way of ascent. Yeah. Um, you say it is so not because it is intrinsically a matter of self exaltation but because we apprehend effects of God and then arrive yeah. at knowledge of a cause that is higher than these, namely God himself. And, of course, I can hear 
you know, in the background here, Psalm 8, Psalm 19, Romans yeah. 1. Uh, maybe to, to help us conclude our discussion, can you uh, explain to us what, what is this way of ascent that Thomas is referring to, and how does it help us see natural theology, not just as, uh, you know, a dis- something that, you know, comes into play when we're talking about the existence of God, but, but actually affects the whole of, of Christian theology and, and Christian life? Yeah, yeah, I think I'll take that in two parts. One having to do with what Aquinas means by the way of ascent, and then secondly, maybe a bit more on what, how natural theology uh, plays a role in, in the Christian life more broadly. Sure. Um, at the beginning, at the beginning of Book Four in Aquinas' Summa Contra Gentiles, he does talk about a way of us, uh, a way of ascent versus a way of descent in our in our knowledge of God, and he says that. Um, uh, in in the way of ascent, we are meant to apprehend God's effects, you know, the, the different things that He has produced in the world, and then uh, and then see from them um, something higher, namely God Himself. Yeah, so we are meant to ascend to some knowledge of God Himself through the effects. And uh, Aquinas construes that as a matter of God being generous toward us. He's given these effects to us so that we can learn something about him from those effects. And it's a matter of God being generous to us because it's, it's helping us uh, take a step toward our purpose as human beings, which is to know and love God and live in fellowship with him. So there is an ascending that takes place when people see from the created order that uh, there is a creator who's, who's wise, who's powerful, who's good, who's just and so forth. Um, And yet that is also inadequate, and, and Aquinas points out in that same place that God gives a way of descent, which has to, has to do with God, um, uh, of course, condescending to reveal himself to us, but also uh, a way of descent in the sense that we get to know God himself through Scripture, and then can uh, descend from an understanding of the cause to an understanding of, of these different effects. And uh, I think... Uh, switching over to what that means for Christian theology or the Christian life more broadly, it sets us up really well to be able to, um, number one, have an understanding of how our, our, our knowledge of God works and how our language applied to God actually makes sense, because we can truly take our knowledge of um, created things, let's say wisdom or, or goodness or power, and... Um, sense something there that actually is applicable to God, because these things do reflect God in a finite and faint way. And I think that that's helpful for us to bear in mind when we come to Scripture. Uh, We do have some knowledge uh, that we uh, arrive at in God's world that helps us to read Scripture well and to learn more about God. And when, when it comes to how that benefits us spiritually, um, we are in a great position as Christians. We have um, uh, wisdom, to use the, the, the word that uh, Augustine and Aquinas use for a knowledge of higher things that helps us see lower things in, in its light. Um, we have a way of descent, you know, whereby we know God himself, and, and then from there can learn of God's effects. So we've got that covered. We're, we're in, um, uh, in union with Christ, and we have that uh, more excellent way of knowledge, but at the same time, we can then look out upon the created order and see 
all these wonderful manifestations uh, of God's wisdom and God's goodness and God's power and glory. So I think that um, coming from a Christian vantage point and being able to see the effects of God in the world and see what's revealed of Him in nature is something that can enliven our worship, because we are beholding um, finite reflections of what God is like. And that is something that um, ought to encourage us. It ought to be a source of wonder. So I think that's something that informs worship and prayer alongside of evangelism. Natural theology done well can have all of those good effects in the Christian life. Mm. We've been talking to Stephen Duby about natural theology, and I hope our listeners can tell by the end of this conversation uh, that actually natural theology is is maybe far more important than than we have uh, thought in the past. And uh, if you've enjoyed this conversation, I would encourage you to uh, not only pick up Stephen Duby's uh, most recent book, God and Himself, but uh, as we've been discussing, go read in Augustine uh, in his City of God, or go go read Thomas and his Summa in, in order to understand uh, you know, what Stephen just talked about, this way of ascent, and how that actually uh, affects then uh, not only how we perceive God, but the way we understand Revelation itself. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.